0: Welcome to the Standard Deviations podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times best-selling author. Today's investors expect more than a transaction. They want a relationship. Show how your firm merges EQ and IQ with Orion's B520. A new shareable assessment developed by dr daniel crosby that provides you with emotional and attitudinal insights into clients to facilitate more meaningful investing conversations from day one get started today at orion.com forward slash b520
1: hello and welcome to the standard deviations podcast i am your host dr daniel crosby and today i'm joined by my friend nicole kasperson a journalist and podcast host based in New York City who is passionate about writing stories that influence the future of economic equity. She's the founder of the media brand Fintech is Fem, which she built from zero to 50,000 subscribers in the first year. Quite a feat. She grew up as a Filipino American in California and Texas and has committed her life to telling the stories of people like her that weren't told when she was growing up. Welcome
2: thank you so much I loved that intro
1: well we just That's did your podcast we just did your podcast I know.
2: I know in case you're wondering audience we're we're doing a, a back-to-back we're doing, double whammy. Way.
1: we're doing the whole we're doing the home way but we're very energized still so no worries exactly so I want to start with uh I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna try and cloud the specifics of this <laughs> I've, I've been on a couple of uh old-school traditional media shows recently. And as I monitored the impact of that, the views of the videos, this sorts of thing, I was sort of shocked all over again at just how limited the reach is versus when I appear on a show like yours or am featured in your newsletter or am on Animal Spirits or or one of these what we might call influencer-type new media publications you know, in our industry, can you speak to the power of podcasts, newsletters and new media and the role it has to play as you try and fulfill your your personal mission?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think in simple words, it could be that culturally people are more interested in following people and hearing valuable information and um, dissected information from people than institutions, right? I mean, think about the many traumatic experiences that all of us as humans have gone through in the last few years or even you a know, couple of decades. The distrust in traditional institutions uh, is just continuing, right? And we're in a place where there's so much information out there and we as humans are just getting hit with so much all the time that we actually are really, you know, as communal creatures, And we're really looking for people that have already taken all the information out there and kind of pared it down in an easy and digestible way for us to understand. And when someone does that in a niche that is so connected to you and your personal story, that person goes from just being someone that has dissected information for you so that you can consume it easier into your almost friend, you know? And that's actually, for me, one of my Biggest value propositions. It's why I'm so handed with who I am. It's why I'm so vulnerable. It's why I leave myself pretty exposed um, about my my personal you know story because it's it's what made people connect with me, and then all of a sudden people started to really resonate with what I had to say, and then you know in your intro resonate they did right zero to fifty thousand readers. I mean my newsletter my unique open rate is still 50%. And so that means that's 25,000 people reading my newsletter twice, what I write twice a week. And that's far more reach than I've ever had at any traditional media company. I mean, there's traditional FinTech media companies out there whose newsletters have like 15,000 subscribers. And it's because people don't want to just hear from an institution. They want to hear from someone they trust. They want to hear from a friend even to the podcast, right? Now, what has been a huge factor in that, honestly, it is, I mean, I'm going to give TikTok a shout out because especially for anyone, you know, listening to this that doesn't play around on that app, it is far more than just dancing right now. Like, it is a completely different world on TikTok. And it is a place where people that have never been Given the opportunity to put themselves out there, to share their stories, to share the information that they found, to share some of the ugly parts of our human history and then for us to address it and move forward. Those things have never really been put out there. And now, like anyone with an iPhone that, that finds something interesting on Google can put it out there on TikTok. You know, you can hold more people accountable. You can hold more elements of our history accountable and put it out there for more to see. So yeah, that's like, those are a lot of the elements that have made being almost going off on my own more valuable than being, you know, in traditional media roles. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. I,
1: I remember the first time that I met you in person at a Mm -hmm. conference in New York and it, it's like we were, uh, look, from my end, we were friends already. Like, you know, it's like but the by the time I met you, I felt like I already knew you. And now, admittedly, we have we we both have ties to the Philippines. We'll talk about that in a minute. So that helped. Man. But like, you would never feel that way about a brand. So mm. a, a follow-up, a follow-up question. <laughs> you know, there's this there's this meme. Brands will take pains to try and humanize themselves, mm. or be witty, or personal. And there's this meme, this kind of like silence brand mean. I don't know if you've seen that. But I think people have a strong negative response to that. If if people are, you know, part of a larger brand, is there anything that can be done for brands to humanize themselves? Or is it just we just don't trust organizations, we just don't trust brands now, and we trust individual influencers more?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so I think Honestly, we're getting to a point where the influence of an individual influencer is also, in my opinion, slowly diminishing because a lot of the larger influencers out there that really emerged from the pandemic are, you know, kind of they're they're doing a lot of brand deals. They're you know they're also kind of almost uh, branding and and almost institutionalizing themselves. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I say this because the the trend now and where I think we're going to continue to head is really more of a focus on community. You know, it's not about being a, you know, an in a social media influencer to help, you know, make just my life easier and make a sale and and, you know, have that as my job. Obviously nothing wrong with that. You know, for me, I don't ever see myself in that light because for me it's always about building an ecosystem and a community for people to thrive in this industry. And so that's where brands need to think for themselves how are you going to build a community an environment that people want to be a part of because people really want to be a part of something that's bigger than themselves especially right now you know the loneliness epidemic of our world is only increasing and it's only gotten worse even though we're you know out of the pandemic now and it's because largely because of these things as i hold up an iphone um the, the, this, we're the most connected we've ever been when we're the loneliest we've ever been. But users are actively engaging and interested in being a part of even online communities. Obviously, if you can do things in real life, if it's better. But that's what I would say for, for brands. And the thing about building a community is that it's got to be about serving others. If you are building a community as a way to just push products, and with that mentality, I mean, of course, you're always going, you're a business, you have to push your product in some capacity. But if that's like why you're interested in building a community, users today, we are way too smart. I mean, this iPhone makes us lonelier, but it also makes us a lot smarter. <laughs> so we're uh, we're too smart and we'll sniff that out. So it has to be authentic. It has to be serving others. And so that's where a brand needs to find their like purpose and their, their mission and, and all that good stuff.
1: Yeah, I, I love that. Moving from institutional influence to influencer influence to, to community. Let's let's talk for a minute about the community that you're building at, at FinTech is Bim. You're building a community of, of women who are doing big things in the world of finance and, and in general and fintech fintech in particular. I, I wanna share some numbers with you. These are numbers I came across a while back and they're just kind of mind boggling to me. Mm. So 90% of women manage their own finances at some point in their lives. Women control, as of seven years ago, I'm sure it's much higher now, women control $14 trillion in wealth. Uh, Almost half of millionaires are women. Uh, 55% of those currently pursuing a college degree are women. Okay. Like the numbers don't lie. Mm -hmm. I take the reality of those numbers and I juxtapose it with how women are sort of uh, systematically underserved by traditional mm-hmm. financial services. And I'm curious what insights you have. Just what do we need to do as an industry to take women more seriously? And, and how can we meet them where they're at?
2: Mm-hmm. I think the first step is, to- is just completely understanding the, the history and having empathy for the history of, Women and financial services. So, at the end of the day, women really couldn't access their own credit cards uh, until the the mid 1970s. So, we have to remember, like that's that's the catch up that we're 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 dealing with. And so, you know, you have to think about okay, think about also the messages that are out there. I mean, we're at a at a point where men are still marketed financial services far more than than women. And we are leaving a $700 billion opportunity on the table by not marketing financial services to women at the same rate as men. That is half of Elon Musk's net worth that we could be generating in 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 revenue for our our industry if we if we focused on women. So I totally agree with you there. Interestingly, to add to your stats, uh, Etoro came out with a, a survey this week, and it shares that. You know, men are still more confident about um, decision making when it comes to investments in financial management. 68% of men say they're comfortable making decisions, while only 40% of women say the same. And while that sounds, you know, that is what it is, but I bet that 40% number was a lot lower in the last few years. Like, that, it's probably a higher percentage now than it ever was. So we're making progress. So but that's step one. We have to understand that we're coming from a place of. We we our starting line was simply different, you know, and and we're still working on getting women to be more to be marketed financial services in a way that resonates with them. And then how do you how do you do that? <laughs> well, I think that women leading the way in financial services and fintech is the key to unlocking a better financial future for everyone. So that's that's the other side of it. So how do we as an industry create you know services and products that are marketable to women? You have to have women building the products. You have to have women making the decisions. You have to have women at there not just with a seat at the table but with a full active voice in at the table. Um and those are the two things, right? You got to understand the history so that you can move forward. Because when you understand the history, you're like, okay, no wonder we didn't cater to women properly there were no women there to to make the decisions to make the products for the women so maybe today we should have women in the seats to make the products for the women and we just have to see more of it because people think you know okay if you got a jane fraser at a at a ceo role you know at a big bank or what have you you know you ha- oh we have sally krautch we have like all these people it's not enough it's it's not enough when you think about our starting line you know as well
1: so it's incredible that I, I can't remember if it was 1976 or, or when it was, but mm-hmm. the credit cards that you're talking about, I learned to so me, right? A, a guy who reads a finance, finance book, a month, I learned this a year ago. Like, I mean, like, I I learned this so recently. Yep. And it was, I mean, I was born in the 70s. Like, this is, like, <laughs> this is shocking. Like this is only a couple of years before I was born. Like that's shocking to me that to think basically in in my lifetime, like what? Mm. And so I think it is important to have a history, uh, have that historical perspective that you're talking about. And I love what you said. We're seeing this in film. We're seeing this in art. We're seeing this in business. That when the people who are being the people who are being portrayed or the people who are being sold to or marketed to are not also represented in the room where it happens and the room where stuff gets created, bad things happen, right? Mm-hmm. Bad things happen. There's a disconnect uh, when when a bunch of people are making decisions uh, without without appropriate representation.
2: Mm-hmm. It's To me, honestly, I'm, Daniel, sometimes I'm shocked at how much I do have to, you know, uh, say it sometimes, you know, because it's like, how easy of a logic is that? to make a product for a consumer you kind of have someone that understands that consumer fully to do it you know and sure you can have your data you can have your analytics you can have all of those things and those things help but i don't know seems like we haven't been doing we based on all these stats seems like we haven't been doing the best job guys so we you know clearly we need to make some improvements um and to me it just seems so log- like so easy of a logic to 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 say okay well then why don't we actually create spaces where women want to be you know uh, at at the decision making table but that's the other side of the of the challenge and it's why i exist because i want to create an ecosystem where women feel not not only that they you know deserve it but that they want it that they want to be a part of that change we need thousands and thousands and thousands of sally krawchecks you know and and she has done an incredibly incredible job What an icon of pushing us forward um and creating that pathway but a lot of us have to do it to see the results we want to see that 50 percent of the population represented in the industry
1: yeah but you know even sally krawcheck right so like you said an, an incredible icon done a done a world of good but if you i were crest right to say like talk about talk about powerful women in finance i would say sally krawcheck and kathy wood yeah and then you know there's more but it's like those are those are the first two that would come to my mind Mm -hmm. the fact that we 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 use the sally krawchecks and the kathy woods of the world so frequently tells us that we need (laughs) like if more no always going to the well with those same two examples like yeah it's a sign that we need we need
2: yeah I mean, it's exactly why I created Fintech and Spam and especially the, is is to profile. You know, I am, I'm busy as, hell. I'm busy as hell. I have no shortage of women to profile in the industry. And that was the idea, something that I couldn't do so freely in a traditional reporter role. But now once a week, you will find in my newsletter, a, a woman that you maybe do know, or probably, or maybe don't know. And they will come from all different walks of life, you know, whether they come from a traditional background in finance or, you know, or they come from venture or they don't come from any of that. And they just decided that, hey, I wanted to build enough is enough. And I want to build something that really creates a finance or tech ecosystem in for for my people and my community. And there I like I said, no shortage of, of women to profile. But I think you're exactly right. Like we can't just tap a handful that have already you know made it in a sense quote unquote we we have to be looking for the you know the the next person that's doing the next best thing i think that media that's media's entire role you know is is to be the people that up uplift the that next great innovator and disruptor
1: yeah so it it wouldn't be the standard deviations podcast without some some conversation around the behavioral aspects of this yeah. Uh, the research around women and investing from a behavioral standpoint is wild. So I'm about to rattle off a bunch of stats. and okay. half of them on the cutting room floor. So here we go. <laughs> I okay. love stats. In study after study, women save more than men. Mm. Uh, women have better returns in both hedge funds, institutional, and retail settings. Uh, they do more research than men before making an investment. They're six times less likely than men to go to cash during a volatile market. They're less likely to buy a hot stock without research. Uh, women's investment groups, like think like church church led investment groups, women's <laughs> investment groups outperform men's investment groups. Yep, and they're less likely to hold an overly concentrated position. So, I mean, from a behavioral standpoint, this is a blowout. Women do everything yep. better, like equipment. <laughs> Everything better, yeah <laughs> so then again, like hold hold that reality against the reality of how it plays out in the industry where we see that women manage less than ten percent of all funds two mm-hmm. percent of assets, two percent mm-hmm. of assets, okay, yeah so w- with that with that setup, right now this is a very long setup, perhaps the longest in standard deviations history <laughs> I'm honored. That? There's a study that you're going to uh, that that you're going to love I think, right? Well, love and hate. So, it the name of the study is Stereotype Susceptibility, Identity Salience and Shifts in Quantitative Performance. Very pithy. I love it. So, mm-hmm. Asian American women were divided as groups group of Asian American women. They're divided into two groups. They have to do a writing assignment in one group they're primed to think about their asianness right mm-hmm. so like mm-hmm. write an essay about what it means to be an asian american woman and re- sort of reflect on the fact that they're asian american in another group again asian american women they're primed to think about their womanhood. they're primed to think right what does it mean to be a woman what is it what you know what is it to be a woman and then they ask them to take a math test the women who were primed to think about being Asian way outperformed the Asian women who were primed to think about being a woman. And if you go to stereotypes, you know, stereotypically speaking, Asians are perceived as being good at math, women are stereotypically perceived as not being good at math. So, this priming function had a real mm-hmm. powerful outcome. On how this group of women performed on the math test. And the last part of the setup, a fidelity study found that of equal parts men and women surveyed, 9% of respondents thought that women would outperform men in investment management. 9%. So we know that women are systematically underselling their own power. Mm-hmm. Right? Their- Correct. And this is like, I'm not blaming the victim here, right? Like this is, right. this is a systematic problem. But when we see this, right, we've got this reality that women are the ultimate behavioral investors, but they're not being looked at in to, to run. Mm-hmm. We've got this reality that women are the ultimate behavioral investors. And yet when you ask women how women are with money,
2: they say not good yeah
1: this for us, Nicole,
2: where do we get where <laughs> where is, to start? Um, <laughs> where well, so and
1: to to unravel this,
2: yeah. I would start with, um we have to remember that women have spent majority of our lives being gaslit by society into believing a lot of the stats that you have said, you know? And so there's a lot of almost self-doubt, right? I mean, when you grow up being told that, you know, the, the version of, you know, a talk for for a woman is, yeah, you know, one, people are going to be out there to try to hurt you. And then two, people are you know going to um, think that you're or they're always going to underestimate you. You know, I kind of grew up knowing that for me. And then on top of that, I'm an Asian-American woman. And that comes with a whole other set of of things because you're getting it from both culturally you're being underestimated, and then also, you know, my, my my gender identity. So it really does start there. We have to remember that um, that we've been and we've been gaslit in so many different ways. You know, all the way down. It, it, yes, in finance, but it goes all the way down to the way that bathrooms are constructed. You know, it, it, one might think it's equal for uh, a male and a female bathroom to have the same amount of stalls, but and that's the way our society typically is. So there's a perception that because women take longer, you know, in the bathroom there's like long lines and stuff. Oh, they're just in there gabbing. They're not doing anything serious. They're just like, I mean, that stuff happens, don't get me wrong. But <laughs> but the reality is is that our systems weren't set up to set us up for success. So the reality is scientifically women take longer to go to the bathroom because of our womanhood and and men take less time. So to have an even amount of stalls isn't actually equitable. It sets us up to stay out longer, to have to stay in lines. It actually sets us up for danger in some uh, underdeveloped countries, and and it creates a whole. It compounds into a whole other slew of problems. And then the perception of the world is women just take a long time in the bath. So that's just another. That's just another example of every single, almost every single system in our society. Has been built without factoring in the part where women are simply different. They're not, they're not, they don't need to be underestimated. They don't need to be, you know, super, they don't need to be coddled. They don't need any of that. They are, je- our functions are different. And so, and that creates so many perceptions from society that are then projected onto us and then. When that's, all of that is projected onto you, you think, okay, well, this is what it is for me as a woman. And how do I adjust myself to make myself as safe as possible in this world that wasn't really ever built for my safety? And, and that's a whole psychological toll. You know, I've had to go through a whole lot of things to get to where I am today. And I'm still learning all the time. I mean, I'm only 29 years old but there's a lot of unlearning. So you're gaslit by society because the structures weren't built for you. And that goes from bathrooms to language all the way down to obviously financial services. And so then you're, you're psychologically made to believe that you're not good enough. And then the systems continue to perpetuate a cycle of homogeneity. So then you're just consistently over time told that you're not good enough because, you know, men get Typically the they get the big raises, they get the big jobs, they get the big thing, they have the networks, they do all these things. Anyway, so these are all of the things that we have to to think about and remember. And now what is important about today is that we are at a place where women, right, they're earning more degrees than men. They're buying houses at faster rates than men. They're doing all of these amazing things despite all of the 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 societal things that are and systems that are put against them so we're actually far more resilient because of it right it's it's how i like to see it i mean we're like the most resilient creatures on the planet and and so that's kind of the 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 gist of how we have to to think about approaching it and it really does start with who are we putting back to financial services who are we putting money like who whose hands are we putting money into you know all the way down to the very, like, to the first check that you're writing for someone, whether it's a company, you know, an entrepreneur, or hiring, right? Women are less likely to apply for those jobs that they're not qualified for. They want to be 100% qualified, whereas a man will do it if they're 40% qualified. But we need that type of psychological switch to kind of happen for us because of all the gaslighting and things I talked about. And to me, the only way you really do that is one community you have to have someone there willing to say i see you everything that you've felt and have gone through in this world is totally valid so shut the gaslighting off arm them with the receipts that they need to move forward so all of that information i have makes me so confident i would love to like sit down with a man and tell me that like women are fun it's all equitable like, I've got stats for days to to prove you wrong. So then I'm so confident in what I know. One, armed with receipts. Then I'm able to move forward in in the world. And then I'm able to do it because I have an environment around me of other women who also have had the gaslighting shut off. So anyway, long. You set me up long. So I gave you long.
1: Long setup gets a long answer. Now that's awesome.
2: But- <laughs> but that's like to me the solution and that's why the the storytelling is so important because unless you can see it you know you can't you can't be it that's just the reality we see what we value but do we value what we see we you have to put the stories out there otherwise you women only think that the option is you either you either become Sally or or you know one other woman you know or Kathy when there's a multiple a multitude of options and and mm-hmm profiles and amazing iconic women out there that you could, that are blueprints for you to follow. But really the blueprint is you. You need to find what your blueprint is for you.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I, I love, again, the idea of communities coming up. I think that's so powerful. That's, that's what you're all about. Mm-hmm. I Also just think about the systemic nature, the gaslighting that you talked about. There's all this great research on, on sort of the math achievement be- gap in, in boys and girls. And like we, you can see it happen in real time. Like, Mm. boys and girls are equally good at math until they reach an age where they start being social, where girls start being socialized away. Mm. And they even see this with teachers who in in big ways and small ways dissuade young women from going into STEM careers, uh, you know, call on boys at three times the rate of girls, things like this. And what's tricky is when it becomes so embedded in the way that we sort of move through the world, it becomes so embedded in our schools mm-hmm. and, and and workplaces, you can confuse what is with what should be, or you can confuse- Exactly. You can confuse the way things are with thinking that's the natural order of the universe. Mm-hmm. When you look at something like math, the natural order of the universe is parody Mm-hmm. And we disrupt that through our sort of misguided socialization efforts. So it it really, like, I hope people who are listening to this will start to just, you know, look look for that. Like, as you move mm-hmm. through the world, look for ways this happens. Because honestly, I think, like, these teachers and these studies, they don't, they're not doing it maliciously. They're a product of the system that they're perpetuating. And mm-hmm. they're, you know, sort of doing what they were taught. But, man, mm-hmm. we can't, we can't get different results until we start uh, living our until uh, we start aligning our systems in new right. way.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, one hundred percent, I would say that that's the other side of my long answer before is that, yes, it's on, you know, us as women to come together and and understand and um and hear each other. But it's also very, very much on everyone. you know, it, it I um fintech is femme was never designed to be a female exclusive. Uh, media company or event or newsletter or anything because i fundamentally believe that we need men and every single person in this society to uh buy in and have you know full buy-in into this uh into gender parity in in our society and and that's that's really such an important you know key because we can sit around and like you know turn the gaslighting off for ourselves but if you know, the people that are at the end of the day, who's still running venture capital, right? Who's still running all of these major systems? It's still largely men. And so we need them to realize like, this is wrong and collaborate with us, right? We need we need it to go from, oh, there's a couple of women at the top. Yeah, we broke the glass ceiling. woohoo! No, to like full collaboration, co-collaboration of companies. And it really does start with, you know, even uh, women are not, are less likely to uh, uh, work, want to work at a startup if majority of the hires at the beginning are men. They're like, oh, I don't see a good future here. I don't want to do this. And so it starts even at the beginning of a startup, like at the fundamental level of a woman doesn't even want to work at a startup because, which is where you get a lot of learning and a lot of, you know, you can work at a startup as one of the first few hires and then become its coo one day you know like you can become in the c-suite and it's such an amazing place to grow and but women don't even want to enter that space because they're not represented and so men need to realize like that when they're hiring they need to realize that when they're when they are writing checks when they're when they're going about building companies they need to realize that like at the end of the day if you're going to serve like the biggest market possible for yourself that then you need all of the co-collaboration that that you can get otherwise you're just perpetuating a cycle of of men getting the most funding and then men being in the most startups and then men meet leading those startups that then become the the next ipo that then become the next big company and then then so on and so that then that then fund the next startup and the cycle continues so we need men for sure
1: yeah so, a, a 2015 study by State Street found that only 39 percent of women said that they felt understood by the investment industry. Yeah. So, terrible, you know. Another like a, a podcast <laughs> full of statistics, right? So the the psychologist in me says like we've got we've got sort of a two part a two part mandate here. <clears throat> on the one on, on the one hand, we have to understand group differences, like you talked about with the bathroom. Yeah. So women live longer on average than men and so there's some longevity risk with women that tends not to be there with with men uh women ha- have a gender pay gap so women make you know 17 to 20 20 plus percent less than men and, and so that's another reality that that we have to address and understand sort of these group these things that are true of a group in general but then the psychologist in me also says yeah but we also need to not not Stereotype or generalize mm-hmm. much, and we need to look for these individual differences. What can we do uh as an industry to better understand and better serve women in, in at, at sort of both levels, at the individual level, and to better understand sort of group generalities, group preferences?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you're totally right in terms of we have to think of it at an individual level. If I were to use myself as an example, okay, let's take like me looking for a financial planner or advisor. Admittedly, I don't got one yet. I hope to have one soon. Uh, <laughs> I'm in the market, um, okay. but I, you know, I and and it's it's if I am looking for any type of service, especially if it's from a, a therapist to a doctor to uh, my my financial advisor, my future financial advisor. It is so important for me to have someone that I know is going to understand um, so much of my dimensions and intersectionality. Right. So, yes, I'm a woman, but I'm also uh, a half Filipino woman. So, I'm biracial. Um, you know, and I I have all of these differences of me as an individual, you know. And so for me, it will be really important to look for a financial I would want a financial planner who's honestly a woman of color because I would want her to understand some of the generational differences and cultural differences that I've had to face as a young millennial biracial Asian American woman. <laughs> and so that, I think, is leads me to representation and actually, you know, what can we as an industry do to ensure that we are bringing more women and people of color, especially women of color, into the fold? You know, when you're asking me that question in my head, I was thinking, OK, well, what percentage of financial advisors and planners are women? Isn't it still like 20, 30 percent? OK, what percentage is our are, are people of color? single digits uh, in in most of those categories whether black latina um you know asian and and then and then i mean i haven't even seen a stat around add women of color financial planners and on top of i want them to be someone that can understand me like if i could just find like another asian american millennial financial planner that would be my dream but my pickings are low and so just using myself as the example you know that that is what we as an industry need to do how we need to be actively bringing more of that representation in the into the fold so that more of our clients and consumers can actually see us in these industries and that way we want to actually be served by them because uh, otherwise that that distrust continues right because i just i mean what am i going to go do uh i don't know i'm not going to really pick from a just a pool of Of one type of person, how how are they going to understand my traumas? (laughs) How are they going to understand me? I mean, they can, and they absolutely can. Yeah, I've got plenty of plenty of people that look and have nothing in common with me from a background standpoint. Where that you know, what we have, we can have shared traumas, but I'm just saying, like statistically. But anyway, so that would be that would be for me the biggest thing that the that the industry can do is by actually bringing in more more representation into our into our roles, into our jobs, into our leadership.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, look, correlation's not causation, but it is awfully interesting that the number of people who say they feel understood, the number of women who say they feel understood by uh, by the industry is not a lot different than the number of women in the industry.
2: Oh, and, well, look at that.
1: Percentage-wise,
2: right?
1: And <laughs> Sort of an interesting thing to consider and, and what that stat might look like if the representation you're calling for w- was a little bit better. So you know the the, the last thing here, I, you know this is a topic. I don't know. It just it feels like it gets people tense sometimes unnecessarily. So, but I think one of the best things we can do is just is just help people know what what they can do. I think sometimes people want to help, they don't know what they can do. For someone like myself, who's who's in the majority. What are some practical steps people in the majority can take it within financial services to create a more diverse inclusive industry?
2: Absolutely. So at the end of the day, look, we love we love policies. We love, you know, hoping to put a big company policy on something and then, you know, like like diversity or gender parity and and hoping that it sticks and works. At the end of the day, that is not the solution. <laughs> that is, you know, you're not going to get the individual buy-in from an institution saying, hey, we're going to make sure to have like one person of color and one woman and one this. Like, no, no, no. Some of the the, the best companies and, and leaders in this industry that I've, I talk to and, and work with and interview do not need to have a diversity mandate because They are a diverse individual or they understand the importance of diversity and, you know, even if they are in the majority. And so they just have it baked into the foundation of their their business from who they hire to, you know, how their business functions. And so my advice would be think about your day to day actions. Your day to day actions are the most important. And it's not just at work. You know, look around your friend group. What does your friend group look like? I'll admit, I had to, I grew up in predominantly white spaces. I had to actively, you know, change where I lived. I had to go somewhere different. I had to to travel. I had to expand my network to to something so much more than just what I was used to growing up. Because, you know, my, my parents did what any good parents would do. They put me at the place where they thought had the, you know, Richest kids and the best things, and you know, that's what they did. So it's it's changing your environment. You know who? What do you see on social? Who are the people you fo- Are you following on Twitter? Are they? Are you seeing a whole? Are you engaging with largely just people that look like you? Change that. Reach out to a woman that you relate to or don't relate to whose story you think is interesting, and tell her that you admire her work. Some of the best validations I ever have are from these amazing men that will share my work, that will, that will tell me what an amazing job I'm doing, will tell me what an inspiration and what, how much they get to learn from me as an older white man who's, you know, maybe hasn't ever had anyone tell them these things. So yeah. And it's the conversations that you have every single day. You know, if you, if you have a, a female colleague who is seeming like she is struggling, help her and don't do it in a, You know, you might be um, hesitant to do it because you think, oh, I'm going to come off like mansplaining or something like that. Just be a human, like be just be your authentic self and (laughs) do your best. And, um, you know, if if you're if you're working and you, you know, you, you you don't have enough women in your workplace, change that, you know, reach out to a friend that you trust that can help you diversify your your uh, colleagues. I can diversify your network. But yeah, those are like all of the different things. I think it's from the environment of your home and your neighborhood and your community all the way down to your environment at work and even social media. You know, diversify that LinkedIn profile. is huge.
1: Yeah, I like this. I like this organic sort of grassroots approach you're advocating for here. You know, I've been thinking, I just think in psychological research studies apparently. So I just, you know, I had... <laughs> I had one come to mind when you were when you were talking uh, about the you know the, the the need for for greater representation in the industry and, and how it helped people to feel understood. You know, there's this study where they seeded um, they had different wallets, right? Mm-hmm. So in, inside these wallets, they had the, the same amount of cash, but they would sort of differ the demographic profile of the of the ID within the wallets, and they would the researchers would drop them in front of people and they found that the best predictor of whether or not someone returned that wallet right was how similar that person was to them. Mm-hmm. So if i find the wallet of a curly-haired 43-year-old white man like right that guy's getting his wallet back but like if i if i find the wallet of a you know an 85-year-old uh you know chinese american woman maybe not kind of kind of think
2: mm-hmm. okay.
1: First of all, it's such a disappointing take on humanity that we, can't, <laughs> you know, you're, you're talking about be a human and it, it's, it's a shame that we can't mm-hmm. see the humanity in other people. But I do think, I do think it's sort of important to call out hard truths like this because we, we know that we tend to like people who are like us.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
1: You know that we tend to like people who are like us and until we bring people who are unlike us into our orbit. And see that they have all the same hopes, dreams, fears, desires for their lives. Mm-hmm. And their kids lives. We tend to think of them as a monolith and not as a person. So you know, combining these two things, be aware of this prejudice that exists in all of us, mm-hmm. and then take take what Nicole is telling us to diversify that timeline, to diversify that friend group, the work associates, to be a human and and learn to see other people as humans.
2: I mean, I. I swear your your life is going to be so much more fruitful and fun and you'll probably have better food involved as well. I mean, look, I'm just saying. So <laughs> Probably better fashion, music. I'm just culturally, you're going to be exposed to so many amazing things. I mean, oh my gosh, my, my closest and like dearest friends that live down the street from me, whose child I babysit regularly. I mean, they're uh mom is from Shaw. She's Moroccan, but was born and raised in Amsterdam or not born. She was she grew up in Amsterdam, so she's also European. And now she's here in New York, and then her husband is a born and bred Brooklyn New Yorker, you know, and they have so many differences, but but also so many similarities to us. And it's just and it's such a beautiful thing to experience what like what her version of, you know, uh of a of a holiday meal is and then compared to like mine being Filipino and you know I mean she doesn't eat pork so we gotta we have that riff but we we make it work a lot of lamb um but just using that as like the food as an example of you're gonna your life is gonna be so much richer and fuller and innovative and and when you have diversity around you you know sameness I don't I fundamentally believe that we as humans on this planet we're like not meant to just be surrounded by by sameness all the time. That's not how you grow. It's not how you become the best, most excellent version of yourself. You know, I I think to look around and a lot of people will look around and be like, it's fine. We're fine. Everything's fine. I'm like, it's fine. I didn't want fine for my life personally. I wanted, I want the best.
1: (laughs) So the, my, my church, the the best thing that's happened to my family this year, my, my church hosted uh, a Ramadan break the fast. Uh, dinner mm. association with uh, two local Muslim congregations, and I was asked to give the opening, sort of the opening welcome to that, and and write a uh, why wow. not on on shared values between the two faiths. And admittedly, I had sort of a cursory knowledge of Islam going in, but had to sort of do my homework as part of that, and. The process of putting that talk together was so personally enriching. Meeting families, we met three families at the uh, at the dinner itself. We become friends with and have hung out outside of that a couple of times since. And like the the conversations have been so deep. My kids have learned so much. They're just such wonderful people, and it's just like it's two groups of people who never would have run into each other. Yeah. If, if we have not sort of taken a little bit of effort to do it, and I'm so glad we did, we're actually going to close with a little bit of that here because if you think about this great country of ours we live in, okay, number one immigrant group to America, unsurprisingly, Mexicans, right? Mm-hmm. Neighbor neighbor to the south. Mex- Mexicans, the number one uh, immigrant group to, to America. The number two immigrant group lives All the way across the world, it's Filipinos, and yet Filipino culture and Filipino food do not get the same love Uh as admittedly delicious Mexican food and Mexican culture. (laughs) So, For our closing remarks here, you're you're, you're half Filipino, you're biracial as you said. We need to turn the people on to what they're missing. I lived in Manila for a couple of years. I seek out Filipino food. I'm going this weekend. Yes. What is, the, what is the best savory Filipino food our listeners can try? Um, have never tried Filipino food. Best savory Filipino food.
2: Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, if you can eat pork, which is big in Filipino culture, then definitely lechon, uh, which is just roasted pig. And... Um, I mean, I'm a huge fan of languanisa and Tocino. If I could eat Longanisa for breakfast every day, which is like a sweet sausage. In the Philippines, we really love like sweet and savory, uh, especially with our meats. And so, and it's like almost like a red sausage. So anyways, that, give me a sunny side up egg or like an over easy egg with a little yoki, you know, a little garlic rice, Mwah. breakfast, ideally. And then... <laughs> So that would be the other one. Um, if you get to try pancit, you could also try pancit, which is a uh, just like a a noodle dish. So you know it's like our version of our it's like our lo mein. Also really good. You can get it in a vegetable style, and then uh, lumpia is also our a more popular maybe a dish here in America, which is um, like our version of the the spring rolls. So I'm pretty sure literally all of those have pork in it. Like I said, the penset you can get veggie formed. Um, that would be my favorite savory. One. Other types of you can put
1: other types of meat in lumpia, right? I mean, it's usually pork, but you can,
2: right, you could do other things. Do what you want it though. I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah,
1: Yeah. Okay, I have nothing to add to that. You hit. You hit most of the highlights. There's more than <laughs> one type, but there's more than one type of lumpia, right? You can get the fried kind or sort of the the summer roll type.
2: Mm, you're okay, mad. Both of them.
1: okay. Yeah, nah. I'm with her on all those recommendations. Best dessert.
2: I like ube in my cakes. I like ube ice cream. Ube is just like a purple yam. I swear I think I like it because growing up as a kid, I just enjoyed that it's purple. But in the Philippines, they'll put like the ice cream in a hamburger bun, you know, from like the people in the carts. And so that's just like a beautiful moment for me in my in my childhood. And then um, obviously hollow hollow, which is.
1: Hollow Hollow uh, yeah. U Ube's great. Like you said, hollow hollow. Explain to folks what hollow hollow is. <laughs> do you know what hollow
2: hollow means? Uh I <laughs> funny that I don't okay, I don't what does hollow hollow mean? It, I know what it is. It means mix mix. So, oh, duh, mix mix. Oh my god. I'm surprised they my family probably calls me hollow hollow. Um <laughs> so <laughs> they're like mix mix. Um yes, yeah, so hollow hollow is basically like a shaved ice dish with milk of sorts a creme and then filled very to the brim and then it can be filled with a bunch of different other types of fillings so usually it'll have like red bean in it which took me a little bit to appreciate until i grew up um it'll have like these jello gelatiny like pieces in it um and then usually it's topped with like a giant scoop of like vanilla and ube ice cream so yeah if that was you- one
1: you haven't lived till you've had shaved ice with corn and beans
2: oh yeah (laughs) Yeah.
1: and pieces of flan topped with purple yam ice cream it's better than it sounds it's actually really good
2: yeah it's it's really good good. and in some touristy places in the philippines you can get it in like a giant like you can get giant hollow hollows but yeah yeah, those are good ones last one best uh best tagalog word what's your favorite tagalog (laughs) So for me, it's masarap, which means delicious, very delicious. Um, After I was born and raised or I was born in California. And then shortly after I was born, my family, we actually moved to the Philippines. And so I spent like my babyhood there, which is why my mom thinks I'm more Filipino than, you know, American. And so, especially when it comes to food, but, um, those, that was actually one of my first words as a baby. I used to just like eat Jolly Bee and say Mass it up" all the time. So
1: <laughs> Jolly Bee. So, so <laughs> yeah. would you believe my family plans summer vacations around proximity to Jolly? To
2: Jolly Bee, <laughs> I would. In, I would believe it entirely.
1: Yeah, if you if you live in Las Vegas, California, California. Manhattan, or Hawaii, go check out Jolly Bee.
2: Mm-hmm. I think there's one in Houston now too. Is there? Yeah, yeah. I think there. I think so. But yeah, that would you could add that to the savory, the the sweet spaghetti. Yeah, sweet
1: spaghetti, <laughs> chicken joy and sweet spaghetti.
2: Chicken joy, chicken joy is just fried chicken, but it's not regular. It's just really, really good fried chicken. Where else Perfect. can you get a, a hamburger with a pineapple on it? You know, it's Absolutely. delicious.
1: <laughs> well, Nicole, you're doing incredible work. You're you're Thank a you. wonderful voice in our industry. If people want to join the fifty thousand people who get your newsletter, if they want to listen to your podcast and follow your work, where can they find you?
2: Yeah. um, You can find me on the internet. Um, Feel free to search uh, Fintech is Femme. Nicole Kasperson. You should be able to find a a link. It'll lead to my parent company, which is workweek.com. And you can sign up for my newsletter there. It's completely free. My podcast is called Humans of Fintech. You can find that anywhere you get your podcasts. One of my latest episodes is with the Dr. Daniel Crosby himself. And (laughs) Yeah, I also host events throughout the year, largely in New York, and sometimes I, I hit up the West Coast. So look out for those. And one of the biggest things is that if you really are looking for a community, especially as you know women in finance and fintech, um, I just launched my very first membership-based community. It's super affordable. I And if there is any financial issues, I am also very flexible and, and understanding of that. But yeah, it's uh, it's in my first online community. It's called Real Talk. Uh, I launched it like less than a month ago. There's already like 40, 50 members in it. And we just have like a good time. It's like so fun to come together as as women and get to talk every day and and share all the tea and just have a network together. So those are some of the things I'm doing.
1: Well, thank you for being human. Thank you for being you. And thank you for your thank voice.
0: You. In Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliate subsidiaries and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.